Welcome to the One Minute Preceptor Podcast, your resource for clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships in healthcare. Learn how to earn letters of recommendation, prepare for your clerkship, and excel at patient care from preceptors with years of practice. We interview physician educators in every specialty and clinical setting to discuss how to prepare for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Here's your host and MedEd entrepreneur, Chase DeMarco. So today's episode is going to be a little bit different. We have Dr. Daniel Hockman, who's a board-certified psychiatrist with private practice in Austin, Texas. He is the creator of the revolutionary online addiction recovery program, selfrecovery.org. Dr. Hockman advocates for using strategies proven through hard science and describes them in ways that are easy to understand and incorporate into one's life. He also has clinical education experience at University of Colorado, teaching medical students and NPs. U of T. Dell has a supervisory role for psychiatry students and for Hood, supervising family medicine residents. Dr. Hockman, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. I know we have a, a com- well, not completely different plan, but sort of different plan than our usual outline here because of the psychiatry and self-recovery type of materials that you really advocate for. And obviously with your program here, it's going to be very interesting since we don't usually cover a lot of details about uh, addiction and recovery for medical students, even though it can be a huge problem. I think that's going to be a great little addition towards the end of the show today. Great. Yeah, looking forward to it. So before we start, I do want to ask, what is either the funniest or the scariest thing that you've ever seen in a hospital setting? Oh, God. Um, one of the things that comes to mind when I think of it happened during medical school was there was this patient who he was on his last days and uh, the team knew it, the patient knew it, didn't want to talk about it too much, but he would start to make some jokes about sort of you know, what was going on. Uh, he was heavily cirrhotic. And one of the things that can happen when you are is, and it is not necessarily too common, but uh, your scrotum can enlarge like crazy. And so this gentleman had uh, just the largest scrotum you could ever imagine, larger than a, a grapefruit. And he just would make jokes every single day about, you know, how, how macho and manly he was about it. And it was hilarious, but of course, very sad as well. It certainly is a reminder that, you know, even in people's last days, you do have to, to sort of keep them in good spirits. And, uh, and that was his way of doing that. And he made everyone laugh. And, you know, that was just a beautiful way for him to go. It was sad, but beautiful. He's hitting on all the nurses and telling oh, yeah. raunchy jokes <laughs> and <laughs> everything, everything, things I probably shouldn't repeat, but just all that stuff. Well, at least he was in good spirits. That's uh, definitely a better way to go than some. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, everyone let him get away with so much since he was just in his last days there that, you know, no one was trying to pull in security or or make him change his ways because it just, it just would not have been worth it. Yeah. It sounds like they enjoyed his company too. So good patience, good company. All right. So when we're discussing your clinical experiences and what it takes to be a preceptor in your specialty. As a psychiatrist, you're actually more subspecialized into the addiction and recovery process. So I'm curious to know what you think, especially from all of your educational experiences, what makes a good preceptor or what are some things that they should be aware of if they're looking into being a preceptor in the future? 
So I have always enjoyed and then certainly like to be a preceptor who takes you know, sort of an extra interest in how that student is developing as a person. And so that might mean, for example, you know, not just helping make sure that that student grows to really know everything about psychiatry and all the medications to use and you know, which side effects you know, are, are the most common and things like that that are easy to ask. Not necessarily easy to remember, but easy to look up. And, you know, you can grow that skill. Uh, Anybody can grow that skill. But a good preceptor to me helps make sure that they develop. So say you show up a little bit late, usually not just give you a hard time about it, but and not try and save the student either, but start to inquire and show that you're interested in helping them in other ways. You know, how do you get here on time? If it looks like you don't really follow up with certain tasks, you know, what's going on there? So any good teacher, in my mind, really fosters people's development in a non-judgmental way and in a way that invites them to keep looking at what they're not very good at, um, but again, on that personal level. So, so any personal challenges, to me, that's sort of fair game. Uh, sometimes people see that as, you know, you're crossing a boundary, you're getting too personal. Um, but any good teacher is going to take a special interest, you know, what's going on with them as a person that gets in the way of them being that really good doctor one day. You can be a great psychiatrist, but if your life is falling apart or you don't show up on time, that's a big problem. That's that's going to be a much bigger problem than you know remembering exactly what medication to use at what time. Yeah, being non-judgmental, having that supportive environment is I think very crucial as well for an educational environment to be healthy and that seems to be something that's becoming more prevalent at least from the discussions I've had, the past interviews I've had, and not criticizing the student too much, not being too invasive or aggressive with them. So I'm glad that you brought those topics up. Yeah. And, you know, just to expand on that, I think medicine has a culture, as do other fields, where, you know, old timers are sort of the experts. They're already, they know it all, they're established. And then, you know, their job is to sort of, you know, give the young uns a hard time. And, and the, you know, when you make it through that, you kind of join the, the club. Uh, you know, it's just an old model. Um, we all kind of know the educational design of that. It doesn't work. It's not helpful for anybody. It's not fun. So, I mean, that's just closer to hazing than teaching. And, you know, just because you might be teaching, don't, don't be fooled. A lot of it is, you know, of course, just a very mild form of hazing. But it's, it's like that, you know, where you've got to sort of make it through and show your worth and, and then make it in the club. But um, yeah, any good teacher is going to be much stronger as a person if they admit their faults uh, and they're not trying to do any gotchas and not, not trying to compare every student to each other and make them sort of all fight and clamor to have the first answer, or the best answer and create this hyper competitive environment, you know, as you're huddling and wandering down the halls in a herd. Um, yeah, you, you want to make it just very inviting and enjoyable and share curiosity with them and, and show what you don't know. You know, that's what a good leader can do, too. Yeah, I always hear the uh, I went through it. So you have to to kind of mentality being expressed. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm glad to see that that doesn't seem to be prevalent as much in, in the newer generations. And uh, I think that makes a much healthier environment for both the preceptor and the students. Absolutely. And. In the past, so you've taught medical students, nurse practitioner students, residents. You have a lot of experience with a wide range of the student population and and medical training population. 
what are some mistakes or learning experiences that really have stuck out in your past? Um, you know, I, I think the mistakes, when I think of that, I, I think less of someone, you know, didn't know this or that, but more about, you know, what, what kinds of people bothered me. And when, when I think of it that way, the kinds of students that have bothered me when I'm in a teaching role are the ones that, that don't really treat that process with respect. Um, so they might even actually know, you know, a good deal. They might be competent clinically, but then just not show respect for the whole process of learning or, you know, and often that extends to other things. And that's, and that's where it becomes a problem. Not so much a respect for the person that's teaching even, but usually it's sort of a signal of just they're, they're not respectful to their patients. They don't, it's usually associated with someone who just isn't really for the right reasons. So um, so those are the kinds of mistakes I see people make, which is not, you know, a mistake minute to minute. It's more of a, a deeper issue that, might, that that person might have where um, you can just tell they're, you know, they're going through motions. They might answer questions. They might even perform all the tasks they're expected to. Uh, but you can just tell they, they really don't care how the patient's going to do at the end of the day. And as a preceptor, when you see that, um, that's not usually a student you really want to fight for. You're not trying to go out of your way to teach them or, or do everything you can to help them develop when you see that they don't care about what they're doing. Um, the other way around, you know, if they do care about what they're doing, you see that they really care about the patients, but they're messing up, uh, maybe even a lot. That's the kind of student I love. It's, um, I don't love they're making mistakes, but uh, I love helping anyone who's really trying to get somewhere. And I think that goes for really just, you know, anybody. If you think of any of your friends or family and you go out of your way, you really want to help people when you see that they're a good person trying. And so that'd be the biggest mistake I see is just making it too evident that that you don't even like what you're doing. It sounds like a professionalism type of issue more so than an educational type of issue. Yeah, exactly. And do you use something similar to the one minute preceptor model when you're supervising the students and residents that you have in the past? I haven't really precepted, you know, quite with that style as much as other people might have. I usually haven't been supervising where we're doing a bunch of rounds where that might be a little more appropriate. When I supervise, it tends to be around a single case at a time. So we're doing a case formulation, looking at how that session went, some of the things that might have been going on parent to them, as well as things that they might have missed. And so, so when I precept, I'm usually actually deep diving and not really doing the one minute. Uh, sometimes that precepting will be like 10 minutes. So, so it'll be after a case was seen, and then you might have about 10 minutes between that and preparing and, and starting the next patient encounter. And so, yeah, I, I wouldn't say I do the one minute preceptorship, not because I don't support it or anything, but just because it's usually not going to apply in my settings. It's a different educational environment. Okay. That's very interesting. I'm, I, I'd like to compare the different environments and how it can apply to the students too. So it's good for any students interested in uh, psych rotation that depending on what type of psych rotation, they might be in an environment that requires something like that. So it's good for them to be aware of that as well. Yeah, I think an inpatient setting, you know, on a psych ward, you're still going to probably get a lot of that because you're running cases. You, you might be running all the cases in the morning or, or midday or something. As an outpatient preceptor, which is more what I've done, yeah, you're, you're generally going to be popping in and out after longer sessions. And so that's, that's why I see it that way. Okay, good to know. So now 
just a few more quick questions about the students. And then I really want to get into more of your specialty and about selfrecovery.org. So we did cover some of the tactics that or some of the personality traits that you like in students, such as caring about the patient, showing the willingness and devotion to them, and really demonstrating that professionalism. Are there any things that a student might want to do to prepare for a rotation with you or anything they could do to really excel and get above the fray? Yeah, the thing with me, so, you know, exactly. It's hard to prepare to, to care about patients. Those are things that are more just personal. You know, as far as preparation and things you could actually do, for me, is really show up knowing what you'd like to do. So um, if you can show up and, you know, show me that you know where you are in your development. So, you know, a med student's going to be in a very different place than a resident who's going to be in a very different place than someone who's been practicing for a while. And if you can show up as a medical student and help the preceptor to know where you are in your development. So say, for example, you, know, you show up in your meeting for the first time, you say, look, I, I think I already know what I can right now about SSRIs and antipsychotics, um, but I'm not so sure how to you know, interview very well to tease that out, or I'm not really sure how to conduct the session. I don't know, should, should I be trying to help them or am I just trying to help them see what their issues are? And you know, those kinds of questions. Um, those are just examples of, I, I like working with people who kind of know where they are and then can turn and then say, well, here's what I would like to learn more about. And, and that's what you know, I think people who really want to learn do very well, uh, always identifying what their deficits are. So you know, if there's anything to prepare in my mind that's beyond just some characteristics that you probably already have, it would be to come in knowing what you want to learn. Sounds like really opening up those lines of communication early on can help let the preceptor know where the student is and the student know if the preceptor is accepting of that. Yeah, I would agree. That's a very important thing. I find that some preceptors are too busy for that. So I'm glad to see that you're one that really takes that as a cornerstone of developing the educational environment for that student. Yeah. And I'll just say, you know, I think it can be done quickly as well. So yeah, if you're helping someone develop on a more sort of character-based level, um, that does take a little longer. But if it's just, hey, I've already got my SSRIs down, my mood stabilizers, you know, I'm, I'm just still out of sorts. I'm not sure when to use an antipsychotic versus lithium for bipolar. That's something that you still could do very briefly. I mean, they could either set aside and teach them because they know that student really wants to learn that. Or that could be something that just comes up, you know, during cases that, you know, when that pops up, the preceptor remembers that's what they're trying to really learn and, and just take that extra time. But I, I don't think it needs to take, take you know, any ample amount of time. That's still something that could be certainly included in a very brief model. That's a fair point. For someone interested, especially maybe going into a psych specialty down the road, are there any tips for asking for a letter of recommendation, either from you or things that you've heard from other psychiatrists or residency directors? Yeah, I would, I would think of this, um, you know, just for, for anyone um, who's thinking about any letter of recommendation, whether it's for a job, for this, for, for entering a program, think of it just like, you know, asking a friend. You're probably going to turn to people who you know, enjoy you and know, trust you and believe in you. And so you're always going to get a better letter out of people like that. First of all, they're clearly going to write a better letter they're going to have more to say. They're going to vouch for you. 
you're going to feel more comfortable that if they were ever contacted, they'd have good things to say. So, so there's that end of it. But, uh, I, you know, I think the way you know it is, isn't necessarily just how much they like you, but, you know, do they really know you? So will, will they care about you? You know, when I get asked to write letters and it's someone who I interacted with just barely and I don't really know the person, that's not a letter I'm going to go really out of my way to vouch for that person. It's going to be a little bit dry. It'll say I supervised them from this to this date. They showed up on time and a couple other things. And the people who read that on the other end can usually tell basically all you're saying is, you know, I stamp this as, you know, I approve this person. They weren't bad. But they also, if I didn't say anything special about them, it's sort of a signal that they they weren't a a great candidate. It's not someone you have to take into your program that's going to be good for the program's reputation. Um, So, you you know, you want someone that really likes you. And I think that's best established to kind of then take that next step. You know, so how do you how do you establish that good connection with a preceptor who's going to go out of their way to write a good letter? think you do that in the same way you would with any friend you know you you want to connect with that person more than just showing up and having the right answers be a human with them you know show them that you're a real person if you've got a dog or any kids or you've got any other hobbies or things about your past or things you're kind of working on or things you like to read you don't have to have a ton of special things about you but you know we all just have little things we like and Sharing a little bit about who you are, I think, makes it easier for the preceptor to connect with them and enjoy the rotation, but also to write the letter if, if you tell me you really like certain things and I've enjoyed connecting with you in other ways. Those kinds of things again, are just part of why you know now you want to kind of fight for that student. You know them a little bit better and you want to see them succeed. <laughs> that's, that's a great point. I was just while you were saying that, thinking about a 14er I did in Colorado with one of my preceptors at the time, maybe I should ask him some questions about this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's someone who's probably going to go out of their way for you. <laughs> you need to. So now that we've covered the basics of the preceptor questions and the student questions, I really wanted to save some time towards the end here to cover selfrecovery.org and the other activities that you do in the community. So where would you like to start with that? You know, I think one thing that's important for students to know that I certainly did not know, there, man, there's so many things to say. One is just about addiction. In my infancy, I, I thought addiction really was just give people the proper education. So, you know, I come out of an era with, you know, the Just Say No campaign and the D.A.R.E. program. And so it was like Nancy Reagan times and that stuff just doesn't work. But that's, I, I didn't examine it. I didn't read the data on it. You know, I thought, you know, when people are doing, you know, bad things, you just, you try and educate them and tell them it's going to be bad for their brains and that they're going to, you know, run into a lot of trouble. And, and so you tell them, don't do drugs or, you know, say no, or think about all the nice things that'll happen in your life if you don't drink or use drugs. and 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 so. I mean, that does a couple bad things. First, you know, it can kind of piss the person off as if they don't know any better or haven't, you know, already thought of that. And then second, you know, makes the treating team or yourself judgmental and and resentful towards the person, you know, feeling like, you know, how could you make such stupid choices? And and you don't treat those patients kindly when you feel like, you know, what why are you here? Why are you filling up our wards? with all your drinking, you know, you're the sense is like you're wasting a bed or 
you know, you're wasting our taxpayer dollars or you're wasting our time, we should be seeing real cases. And so that's part of the harm that comes with thinking about addiction, you know, in an old fashioned way that just isn't, you know, up to date at all with, with how it really works. So, and I got interested in it when I started, you know, wisening up to that. And I saw, wait, looking at that and then compared to what I was learning about how the mind really works, how human behavior works, how our lives are much more complex than I thought. And, you know, you start to see that, you know, these are, these are people struggling with anything that's just as legitimate as high blood pressure and cardiac disease and other things. So, so when you, when you can see it as a valid legitimate problem, um, but beyond that, um, something that people aren't really consciously choosing, it makes it much more fun to, to help and treat those people and not only easier as the, the treating doctor, but it actually finally helps the patient when you're reaching them in a different way than, you know, saying just make better choices. And so that's maybe the first thing that comes to mind as far as thinking of you know, where I was in residency and just how off I was thinking that it was just a choice issue. And I think that's still very common, the negative stigma that's associated with addiction. And as we sort of discussed a little before starting the interview, that's also why addiction is very common in physicians, but also even at the medical student level. But no medical student is, well, very few are likely to go seek treatment because of that negative stigma, because of the potential repercussions that they are afraid to face. Do you have any thoughts on that or advice for students at that point? Yeah. So. I mean, you're exactly right. It's, you know, you have to say, well, why is there a negative stigma? And and a lot of it is because it's not just the act of, say, drinking, but really the stigma is, you know, hey, you idiot, how, how could you possibly decide to drink when it's healthier not to? And you have an exam in a week, so you should yeah. be here tomorrow. Or tomorrow. Or... <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, you know, that that's where the stigma is. It's not the actual act. It's the act on this notion that it's it's a simple choice to make and now you're a real idiot right if it's a simple choice and you're the assumption is that it's a conscious choice that person's making that's where that stigma comes from so so yeah you know it it's an interesting topic to think about for the listeners now because it's it's not just how to think about addiction it's it's how to think about treating it everyone listening hopefully is interested enough, you're, you're going to encounter patients with an addiction all the time. A high percent of any of the treatment you're providing is related to people's addiction. So even if you don't like seeing addiction as a primary chief complaint, first of all, good luck on that. But, but if you can see it just as a secondary or sort of unrelated issue, it's there. It's there. That's why people end up in ERs. That's why people have longer hospital stays. It's why a lot of people have GERD, gastritis, heart disease, you know, they're overweight from drinking. It's the problems are endless. Um, Alcohol affects almost every single organ in the body. Um, Other drugs, you know, do other things. But so yeah, I mean, one is you you've really got to understand addiction because it's underneath so much of what you see. And if you're really going to connect and help patients, um, you have to have your eye open for that. But the other part of it, like you're getting at too, is anyone going through medical school has to recognize we're, we're part of it. We're it. You know, we're not immune to that. We're not these wise people that make the right choices and we're treating people that make bad choices. Yeah, we are 
just like the average population and we have block parties and we have our own problems and from the medical student point of view and also it's on most hpis when you go into a clinical setting you're going to have to ask that to every single patient that comes in in certain clinical scenarios like surgery and stuff like that so becoming more aware of this early on i think is very very vital to their healthy outlook uh, in the future for themselves and for their patients yeah yeah, you know, you know, we we always have to keep ourselves healthy before we can help other people, and there's just you know strong case of that. And it's worse than what you say. Actually, it's not just that we too are affected by addiction. Doctors have higher rates. We have extremely high rates of suicide, extremely high rates of burnout, depression, and high rates of addiction. And this goes for other helping professions. This goes for other high stakes professions. You know, like lawyers and people that also go to sleep worrying about their cases. And so, you know, we're, we're in a profession where our responsibility level is high, combined with the stakes being really high, the work level is high. We are all self-selected for being, whether we call ourselves type A or just care a lot or try hard or very focused on outcomes and making sure we're doing well. You know, we're just a complete setup for a lot of the features that drive addiction. And trying to escape those responsibilities sometimes in the form of a lot of alcohol or sometimes harder drugs, that's, that's actually to be expected when you've got a high pressure situation, not just medical school, but you know, it continues. Even if your hours are reduced later, it's a very responsible and privileged role to have in society and in people's lives you know, to take care of other people. I have two kind of questions here that you know, not being an addiction expert and not having looked into these too much before, not really having thought of them too much before. Do you know, is there any research stating that some of the addiction, alcoholism, whatever starts earlier on, such as at the medical student levels? Because a lot of the burnout literature seems to say that now that burnout starts in medical school more so than just as a physician. And also, you always hear about kind of the opposite of the just say no campaign is that it's a genetic, there's like a, a, an alcohol gene or an addiction gene. Is there any evidence towards that that you're aware of? So there's a lot of things in there. I'll try and sort of go over some of the most important points to know. Yeah, I mean, certainly we do know epidemiologically that addiction usually develops through sort of, you know, adolescence and then in, into people's 20s is usually when the frequency and intensity of use goes to its highest level for a variety of reasons. You know, people are, when they're younger, just a little more reckless. They usually have less to lose than later on when you have a job and family and, and just more energy and things are still newer. So there's a lot of reasons for that. And the natural course is for it to die down and sort of subside over future decades. So that's true for anybody, including us as doctors. And yeah, I, you know, I think you can associate that with burnout as well, where you've got a lot of energy when you're taking your MCAT and then starting out med school. And, it, and it's, it's hard to maintain that, you know, all the way from the time of MCAT through your last day of residency. That's a lot of years, depending on what you do, especially. So, you know, that's just the natural evolution of that is to at some point, you know, get more and more burnt out and your fuse is just going to be shorter further into that process. So think of it more from that developmental perspective than that there's any necessarily like one stage of it that does anything so differently. I think it's more just a time issue of how it evolves. And yeah, it's it certainly starts, you know, as far as how addiction, 
you know, starts to take its hold. Yeah, it absolutely starts before medical school. It starts actually before college. So sometimes we see the outward behavior take off when someone's around free access to alcohol. So often when they leave, sometimes getting away to parties and things in high school, um, but after high school and there's less oversight and more access to alcohol and drugs, the use obviously goes up around that time. But the addictive process might have begun many years before that, actually. And, and that we do know. We have really good longitudinal studies that have looked at cohorts of people and looked at how their addiction began. And the outward addiction might not start until you're really exposed to it and left you know, a little unchecked. But it starts much earlier. And a few things to put on people's radar with that is being raised in a way that's very results-oriented is one of those factors. Being raised in a way where you're sort of a people pleaser or trying to satisfy other people's expectations and needs um, is another major factor in the development of addiction. And another one is suffering through a lot of criticism. So those are a few of the features that we know lead to what we call learned traits. You know, those are the learned traits that go on to produce addiction. And there's obviously a lot more to it, but you know, being results-oriented, being a pleaser, and suffering criticism, uh, just think about it. You know, a lot of us, not just a lot of people, but especially in the medical field, a lot of the times we're, we get as far as we do because we did go through that. You know, we're very results-oriented. We were trying to get A's. We were trying to please our parents or stay well-received and well-liked amongst our peers that might have been in advanced classes. You know, we're trying to keep up and and the criticism may or may not have been there for a lot of us where same thing, you know, parents and other people criticizing you if you don't do very well. And that's not just with grades, mind you, you know, it's just with anything, you know, not performing well in other kinds of activities, not dressing well enough or your handwriting's not good enough, all that stuff. So it's unfortunate, you know, the same kinds of things that can produce people to keep going after really good outcomes, whether that means good grades, you know, be a doctor, or be a good professional or achieve some prestigious position somewhere. Those are all the same sorts of features that lead to addiction. You know, it, it, it's hard to live that way. And people, you know, usually need to find a way to escape all of that sort of pressure. Just one more quick tangent on that. Are you familiar with the ACEs score, the adverse childhood events? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's part of this whole picture as well. That's multifactorial, mm-hmm. very much yeah. so. Yeah. And just, you know, so people listening can know, you know, ACEs are the adverse childhood experience inventory. And, and that, you know, is looking at a bunch of different um, abuses and traumas and neglect and things like that that someone might go through in childhood. And yeah, I mean, you if you have a, a mid-range or higher level ACE score, you know, say, you know, a single parent household or someone was in jail or there was a lot of yelling, you know, abuse going on, your chance of addiction is several hundred times percent-wise uh, higher than an average person's. So, so yeah, you know, that's a big piece of this. But I'll just add, there's always another layer. You know, some people call addiction an issue of like not belonging. That's one of the newer sort of themes floating out there along with like this, you know, ACE scores, those are huge contributors. But part of it too, you always have to to ask yourself, yeah, you know, life was difficult and I had challenges, uh, you know, I either didn't belong or, or maybe went through very difficult things. 
but you have to ask yourself, well, why didn't that only manifest as, you know, anxiety or depression, right? And so you still have to say, well, why, why do you turn to the bottle? Or, or why do you need to use that many painkillers? You know, why aren't you just depressed? And, and that's where these other processes come in, the being the results-oriented pleaser. That's usually the feature layered on this that brings about what we're talking about, as well as a lack of accountability. You grow up in a way where mom and dad sort of tie up all your loose ends. And if you forget something, they say, hey, you forgot that. You know, hey, have you studied? Did you remember to do this? Or maybe when you're older, you get a legal infraction, public intoxication, and they, mommy and daddy get the lawyer involved and save your butt. When, when you're the kind of person that just never really has to suffer consequences and learn to be disciplined and accountable to yourself, those are the kinds of things, again, it's just those, that's above and beyond just, hey, I went through a, a tough life. That's why it can go to not just depression, but addiction. Wow. There's definitely a lot to consider in this topic of addiction and alcoholism. So for students that want to learn more, obviously we have selfrecovery.org. Do you have any other recommendations that they could go to either to learn more about it or maybe seek help themselves? Yeah. So on the website, selfrecovery.org, it's something, you know, if you don't have an addiction, some, it's an easy way to reach people who do, you know, whether that's a peer or patient you end up seeing. The reason I developed and made it and have spent, you know, years now working on it is it's not, not just for an interesting side project. It's a few things. One is there's not a good amount of evidence-based care out there. Most of what's out there is not really, you know, based on evidence. It's, it's very lacking as far as, you know, actual therapeutic modalities. Um, and it is very superficial, like we were getting at before. You know, it's a, lo- a large amount of counseling around addiction is just helping give people advice on, you know, who to be friends with and get rid of all the alcohol at your house and just have a relapse plan. And, um, and that just falls short. It can help a little bit. So one reason I made it is, is for that. So it's a good tool to use. To, to really understand all the different therapeutic modalities to use. I put it in a seamless way so anybody can really understand it. And then, you know, the other piece that's important to mention here is I really made it because most people don't ever access anything. So only one in 10 people with an addiction ever reach any formal kind of treatment or help. So that's a horrendous number. So it's not just an issue of boy, addiction's hard to treat. We're only treating one in 10 people. So you know, what about the other nine and 10? Guess what? They're, they're you and I, right? They're, they're the people that you're sitting in class with or, they're, or it's you. And why don't you get treatment? Well, same reason as anybody. You, know, you, you don't want to admit it. You don't want it to be an issue when you're applying to residency. You don't want insurance to see it. You know, patients I see keep it off the record because they don't want their life insurance to see it and kick them out. I mean, there's a lot of repercussions. And, and it can also be very expensive. People think you've got to go to rehab. And so they don't want to go away for a month. They don't want everyone knowing. They don't want all the family overreacting. There's a bunch of reasons we don't do anything about it. And, and I wanted to provide a way that people can access that, but privately, safely, be able to take down their defenses and walls that you'd normally put up. And just go through a process of self-discovery so that you can figure out how it developed for you, what's going on, consider everything about 
who you are so you can actually get to the underlying issues. So, um, so that's what the program takes people through. It's, it's very comprehensive and holistic. Is it kind of like a questionnaire that they go and start with and then it guides them from there? Or is it video lectures? What kind of, how did, is the program described? Uh, both of that. So, so it's video lessons that are by me and they're all bite-sized. So they're generally like three to six minute videos and you'll learn a lesson. And then after you watch that video lesson, there'll be associated music and it's all online. It's across any device. So you just sign in and create a profile. It's kind of like an online college course or you know certification or something you would do where, you know, records your progress and all that. So you watch a video, you would click next, and then you're brought to those kinds of questions. So if you just learned a topic about a certain dynamic about relationships, you're then going to be posed certain questions um, that are only for you, by the way. You know, that's the beauty of this. It's, it's really just for you to learn about yourself and decide for yourself what you want to do. And, but you would be free to record your own responses for each question that follows the lesson. And that helps you integrate what you're learning. It helps you start to put a real plan into place. And you can always also refer back to it so you can see what you've set out to do. And there's optional groups as well. There's two groups a week that we have going right now. And, and, other, and there's other features too. There's a mindfulness series and other checklists and things like that and a discussion forum. But the idea is, you know, you can stay as anonymous as you'd like and do it at your own pace. And, and it involves both of what you're asking about. So yeah, it's, it's, it is involved, you know, it's for people who, who truly do want to get at their underlying issues and, and just be sort of done with it all, not just be trying your best to not drink every day and white knuckle it. So, so yeah, you know, all, all people have to do is go to the website and, and you can create a profile in just minutes time. And yeah, whether it's yourself or, or for a patient, you know, it's sort of self-explanatory once you get to the website. But so people know um, right now we have three different sort of offerings. One is a six day challenge. That's sort of the lowest barrier, you know, for people that just want to get in and just do something for themselves. And that's just a PDF actually. And that's not sort of a whole program, but that six day challenge brings people through the, the model that I use to expose them to correct ways to think about addiction behaviorally. And then there's another one, a product called a toolbox, and that's for people who are interested in spending several hours worth. So that takes like a day or two to kind of you know, get through and chew on and learn. And, uh, and that does include, you know, the lessons and questions. Um, and then there's the full program. And that's the one that really helps people go the distance when they know there's a lot that they want to look at and take care of. That's great. I know a lot of people are either too lazy or don't trust going to AA and having to take time out of their day every week or a few times a week to drive to a place and it's uncomfortable. A lot of times it's in a shady part of town or something like that. So mm-hmm. having an online format for this too and being more evidence-based and having all these extra resources, groups, extra activities, sounds like a great resource for anyone to send patients to or use themselves. Yeah, yeah. And that was a lot of it, you know, just that low barrier so that people will actually do something and not stay in that nine and 10 who just don't do anything. That's what kills me is looking at this addiction epidemic and we're increasing funding for, for programs and, you know, doing all these fancy things. And we've got about 15,000 addiction treatment facilities and we're, we're just not reaching, you know, like they're lavish and they're amazing and they've got horses and everything. And, you know, we're, but we're not, we're not reaching most people, not just most. I mean, 
we're reaching a sliver of the people. That's, that's what's terrible. It's, it's, it's very hard to watch. Wow. Yeah. That's definitely something that can make a big difference. Well, hopefully this gets the word out a little bit more and through our student audience, maybe especially once they become physicians or even while still students, they can pass on this information to other students and physicians and mentors. Do you have any parting thoughts for students? Hmm. You know, I'd say, you know, just, just stay curious and it's easy to forget when you're in the thick of it. And I just, man, I, I remember, you know, my third, fourth year of residency, probably more third year, you know, I was, I was thinking of tapping out, you know, I, I have other, other interests too, you know, it's not just medicine and psychiatry for me. And, and, um, you know, you, you sometimes kind of forget what really fascinates you. So, and I don't just think of it as an interest level or energy level, but making sure you remember what you're curious about. You know, if you're curious about the human body or why people do what they do or curious, you know, how to best help people in the office when you see them, you know, you're, you're going to be fine and you'll be, that, that's what's going to carry you. Um, so just for anybody, just hang on to that curiosity, not just in times of struggling, but, you know, when, when things get stagnant or boring or you get out there, you know, 10 years later, you know, just stay curious. And whether that drives you to do research or other volunteer work or push your own knowledge or whatever, you know, just staying curious to me is, is just one of the most stabilizing and sort of growing qualities that, that anyone can have. So stay curious. <laughs> I like it. Well, what about if anyone was thinking about being a preceptor in psychiatry? Um, well, I'd love for, you know, more good people to enter psychiatry. It's to me, it's, it's what influences so much of human behavior when we can help people do that. So, so I'd almost kind of combine that with, you're going to be a preceptor in psychiatry, please, you know, don't, don't just help people know all their meds and master that, you know, try and find a program that can help teach you good therapy and feel competent to be able to supervise, not just medical people, but therapists. A lot of what I do now is actually going out and teaching therapists. And I would not have felt comfortable doing that had I chosen different kinds of programs. So, um, you know, I chose a residency that set me up to do that well. And combining the part of staying curious, you know, I'm just, I'm always curious why people behave the way they do. And that helps me get better and better at understanding that. It helps me stay really interested in teaching it. So, you know, any future preceptor, if you're curious, but whatever that is, even if you're not interested in therapy, if you're curious why certain medications work, that's going to carry you to do research in, in, a, in probably the most effective area if you're actually asking yourself the best questions that you can. Awesome. Well, Dr. Daniel Hockman, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about selfrecovery.org. Thanks so much for having me and listening and uh, best of luck to everyone. 